Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Mark 14. Some excerpts from 14 and 15 as we sit in the gravity and the beauty and the wonder that is Good Friday. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they had killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go to and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him. And whoever goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared and there make ready for us. And so his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer eat, drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then they came to the place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. And when he went a little farther, he fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, this hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Now Jesus' betrayer had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he's the one. Seize him and lead him away quickly, safely. And soon, as soon as they had come, immediately he went up to Jesus and he said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid their hands on Jesus and they took him. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. They were with him, assembled all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and he answered nothing. And the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes. And he said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And some began to spit on him and they blindfolded him and beat him. And and they began to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and they led him away to be delivered over to Pilate. Now it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above him, the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. And so the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And likewise, the chief priests also, 
mocking amongst themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And even those who were crucified with him reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood by when they heard that, they said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. And some ran and lifted a sponge full of sour wine. They put it on a reed. They offered him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion, who stood opposite him, saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. This is God's Word. As a kid, I could not understand why Good Friday was called Good Friday. Seemed like anything but Good Friday. But as we come to understand the power of God's love, we see that it's good for us. In every world religion, you have a sage or a guru or a leader or a prophet saying, this is the way to God. Do these things, work your way up to God's acceptance. And as Christians, we celebrate that our faith is the exact opposite. We do not work our way up to God. Our God came all the way down to us. We are not accepted on the basis of our ability to please him. We are accepted precisely by his atoning sacrifice through which he made a way that we would be pleasing to the Father. The nature of love is costly. If you say you love somebody and you sacrifice nothing, you don't love them. You're leveraging them. You're you're wanting something from the relationship for yourself. If they have to orient their life around you, love is costly. And in the cross, we see the ultimate cost, the ultimate love. A God who is not presiding above creation, distant, arms crossed. But a God who comes into the sorrow and the suffering of his creation to redeem his creation with his arms stretched out wide on the cross. Willing to pay the cost to redeem the creation that he loves, the people that he loves. It is the image of ultimate love. This crucifixion is taking place at the Passover celebration meal, commemorating the defining moment in Israel's history when God sent the tenth plague on Egypt. And the ten plagues were not ten arbitrary cosmic parlor tricks. The ten plagues were intentional acts of judgment against ten ancient Egyptian gods. They worshipped Aten, the god of the sun. God blocks out the sun. They worshipped Osiris, the god of the Nile. They believe the Nile gave life. God turns the Nile to blood, kills the god of the Nile, and so forth and so on. All ten plagues. It's an evangelism act that God is doing. He is showing that in contrast to ancient mythology of the myths of the other gods, that he is the one the only, the true God. And Pharaoh is continually hardening his heart against God, against the truth of God, against the cosmic display of God's obvious power. And Pharaoh 
refuses to release the people of God and chooses to keep them in oppression and crushing slavery. And because of his unrelenting hardness of heart, God, in the tenth plague, determines that he is going to kill the firstborn of any home that does not turn and trust in him as the one true saving God. This judgment being put out. And God does not put out judgment without ever making a way to be saved from his judgment. And so in the Passover, God made a way to be spared the judgment. They were to trust in his provision. It was a sacrifice. It was a lamb that they called the Passover lamb. Anyone who trusted in the sacrifice provided by God would not face the judgment of God. And so the judgment of God passed over as they took the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts of their homes. The judgment of God passed over. And so the blood was put on the doorposts. They sat and they ate the lamb with their family. It was a meal. You didn't just accept God's sacrifice in a vague external way. As I believe in this God out there somewhere. You, you ingested it. It was personal. It was internal. You sat with your family and you ate this meal and you trusted in God's sacrifice. Salvation has always come by God's substitutionary sacrifice. And Jesus is this Passover lamb that is being sacrificed at the Passover. Precisely at the time when the priests were supposed to be going out looking for the perfect sacrificial lamb. They are crucifying Christ, the ultimate sacrificial lamb. And the one for generations who would preside over the Passover meal. Generation after generation for millennia. The one presiding over that meal would say something like this. They would say, this is the bread of affliction eaten by our forefathers in the wilderness. Something like that, they would say. So imagine the, the disciples' reaction when Jesus is presiding over this Passover meal. And he takes the bread and they are expecting the script that has been said for generations, for millennia. And Jesus changes the script. Imagine what they would have thought when instead of hearing Jesus say, this is the bread of affliction which was eaten by our fathers in the wilderness, which they would have likely been mouthing like a liturgy that you and I get familiar with and we mouth along with the liturgy. And imagine their surprise when Jesus says, this bread is my body. He puts himself in the script. This is why all of Israel's history matters for not just the nation of Israel, but every nation. That Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise of grace and salvation and mercy for millennia. Jesus puts himself in the center of this Passover meal. He presents himself as the one who would lead humanity on the ultimate exodus from our common enemy, which is death. That he will lead all those who trust in him from death to life. And just as that first Passover was observed the night before God brought deliverance from death by the blood of the Lamb, this Passover is being observed this night by God who will bring deliverance from the finality of death through the blood of Jesus. And one thing that's worth noting is that every gospel writer, all four of them, record that there is bread at the table, there's wine on the table, but none of the gospel writers mention the lamb on the table. And the Passover meal was not a vegetarian dish. They always ate lamb. There's no lamb mentioned on the table. It's like from a literary 
point of view, they're casting our gaze to recognize the lamb is sitting at the table. And so the text moves us from here as we recognize that um, there's this Passover meal that is normally celebrated with your family. And all of the disciples had family. So what is Jesus doing by inviting them to share the Passover meal, not with their own nuclear families? Jesus is painting this glorious picture at the Last Supper, the establishment of his family, his global, multicultural, eternal family, that the basis for which all believers are family is united around Christ alone and Christ and him crucified. He's establishing the family of God, which is the nation of Israel and all the other nations. And he's establishing it here by having them leave their nuclear families to say, this is now the basis for family. This global and, and diverse unity. And so here at Redeemer, at this church and every church, our unity is not around our level of education, our socioeconomic status, your political leanings, who you plan to vote for, how you think the church ought to have handled COVID. None of these things are the basis for our unity. Christ in Him crucified is the basis for which we enjoy this unity. This is the basis for which we gather and worship. So if you are with us today and you are exploring Christian faith and you say, but I come from a big different background, I come from a, a different way of understanding life, we, we, we invite you in to place your faith in Christ in Him alone and welcome the diverse family of God. We don't leave our cultures and, and become a homogenous Christian culture. There's no such thing as Christian culture. This is what is being established here. And not only this image of this family of God around the, the Christ and his sacrifice, but then the text moves us to the garden where Jesus is in anguish and he's surrounded by his sleepy friends. And he wants them to pray with him, and, but they can't. And here we get this image of this disparag- disparaging difference between God's immeasurable generosity and human inadequacy. We've all been let down by friends we wish were there for us. We all know what it's like to feel alone. We all know what it's like to feel like there was someone who was there for us, but they let us down. And this is Jesus in this greatest moment of his life where we get this vivid record of God the Son asking God the Father... To change the circumstances. And yet at the same time. Jesus is not trying to take control of the circumstances. In fact. God the son is trusting God the father. With all the circumstances of his life. And united by Christ and full of his spirit. This is informative for us. This is informative for all New Testament prayer. That we can trust God with our very life. And we do not need God to change the circumstances, but we have a God who is with us, giving us strength and weakness in the turmoil of all circumstances. And while this is all happening, Jesus, Jesus is asking his friends to stay and pray in his sorrow and his stress. And Judas shows up with a mob, shows up with swords. Of course he shows up with swords, because every historical revolution in human history has involved people taking up their swords. And we're not so as advanced and enlightened as we'd like to think we are as moderns because still today, all over the world, somebody someplace is taking up swords. And even here in Canada and and, uh, in North America, our, our friends and neighbors to the south, we are constantly taking up metaphorical swords, constantly asserting ourselves into the throne and ascending and giving our own ideologies, coronation ceremonies as we cast our judgment 
increasingly on one another in a, whatever revolution it is that we feel is warranted in society, always taking up swords. The same things have always been at the top. The same old things of political power and greed have always been at the top. And so every revolution has been fueled by the idea that the only way to get, bring true change is to swap out the people that are at the top. So they show up with the swords because they assume that the kingdom that Christ is giving is nothing more than a microwaved and regurgitated kingdom of every other revolution they have ever seen. But what they do not understand is that the kingdom that Jesus is coming to inaugurate is unlike every kingdom that the world has ever seen. It is not a revolution from the top down. It is a revolution from the bottom up, from the inside out. It is laying down power and using our power to love the people that are sitting next to us, loving those who are in need in our city. It is the kingdom of our king, unlike any other king that the world has ever seen. The other gospel accounts record that Peter takes out his sword. Of course he did, because this is what you, everybody does in revolution. And Jesus says, put away your sword. In fact, when Peter takes out his sword and he cuts off the ear of one of those soldiers who was there in the garden, Christ our King demonstrates his kingdom by healing the very one who's coming to nail him to a cross. This is the kingdom that our King has come to bring and and bring you and I into as his children, as the children of God. And so, as this is all taking place, and they are assuming that they're going to just swap out power, Jesus Christ comes and demonstrates that he has come as the king, uh, the king of hearts. The passage then moves on to the courts. Jesus is appearing before the courts. He's in the trial of his life. And he's called to the witness stand, and he's asked by the high priest, are you the Messiah? And his answer is, I am. And then he says something else. And the next thing that he says in verse 62 makes everything go sideways. The next phrase that comes out of Jesus' mouth causes the high priest to tear his robes. They're going full Hulkamania. Jurisprudence is gone. This is a religious brouhaha. Look at what Jesus says in verse 62. Am I the Messiah? Oh, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, and you'll see me coming with the clouds of heaven. Everybody knew what that meant. For you and I, it's a little bit cryptic. They knew what that meant. Because it meant. The Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power is a claim to have the power of God to judge. That's what the phrase, son of man, sitting at the right hand of power means. And they all knew it. That's why they tore their shirts. And the next thing he says, coming with the clouds of heaven. He's not talking about water vapor. He's not talking about coloring book images of Christianity. Where it's just like this sort of moving form. That coming on the clouds of heaven meant the I am coming with the glory and the presence of God. With the power to judge. This is what Jesus says. He was silent like a lamb to the slaughter until they asked him who he was. And he was pretty clear. And here we see this amazing confrontation. 
While they stood there presuming to judge Jesus, putting him on trial, Jesus said, I'm the divine judge with the power to put all of you on trial. This is what he said. Of all the images, of all the scriptures, he could have chosen shepherd, prophet, priest, king. Jesus chooses judge. Notice this incredible paradox here. He's provoking everybody to see the paradox. I am God. I am the judge over the entire world. But it's God that's being put on trial here. And since then, God's been continually put on trial with regularity. A small people made of dirt one day returning there. But notice the posture of Jesus. He doesn't say this and then fire lightning bolts like Zeus to kill everybody who opposes him. Our God is a God of such radical love. He dies for the people who are judging him. He, God, our God in Jesus Christ is such a formidable enemy, he, a formidable foe, he is willing to go against himself as his own enemy and not make his, not make his accusers the enemy. He goes to the cross for them. He goes to the cross for you and I. And then the passage takes us to the cross. And all four gospel writers, including uh, this passage here, make sure that we know that it was eerily dark. Pitch black at lunchtime. If you translate the timelines there, it's from 12 till 3 p.m. So from 12 until... if, If we left the service today and at lunchtime... It was like midnight. That would be terrifying. And for three hours, it was eerily dark. And darkness throughout all of the scriptures is an image of God's judgment. God's judgment is coming. But I want you to notice where the judgment is being poured. On himself. Jesus Christ taking our judgment, bearing it. And some of you might be here exploring Christian faith and you might say, you know, this is part of the thing that is difficult for me, this God of, this God of wrath, this God of judgment. Notice where his wrath and judgment is being poured on himself. He's not a, he's not a bloodthirsty God. Don't believe, um, you know, the voices uh, of those who would suggest that God is somehow uh, out for blood, a bloodthirsty ogre. He's quite simply not. He shed his own blood. Not only that, but I'd invite you to consider, if this is again difficult for you, consider the world in which you live in. You live in a world of radical judgment every day. Scroll through your newsfeed. Everybody is crying out for justice every single day. Now, we like the word justice better than judgment, because if we held up big signs that saying, I'm holding you in judgment, uh, that would be politically, correct at the high, politically incorrect at the highest level. However, we live in a world of tremendous judgment. In the great irony of our conversations around being people of tolerance is that that's not possible without getting people to check the certain ideological boxes and then prescribe tremendous judgment. So you see, whether you believe in Jesus Christ as the one true king or not, you live in a world of judgment. Right now, world leaders are calling for judgment on Russia, but they're all quite confused as to how to do it, how to execute it. And the reason is not because the problem is so complicated nobody knows what to do. The problem is so complicated that they want to be able to do things without a recourse. 
on the actions that they take. This is the world in which we live. This is the complexity of the problem of, you see, if there is no divine God, divine judge, divine, divine uh, standard for which there can be truth, we kill that idea of God. The only choice we have left is to coronate ourselves and sit on the throne and to borrow from Arthur Leff, the uh, professor of law at NYU. He would say, if there is no God, then the only choice we have is that we must exalt ourselves and then we are the legislators of truth. And who wants to go first? Who wants to prescribe to be the one who has truth. So you see, here in this great judgment of God, we see that he is pouring it on himself. You know, Christ will return, and that's not the sermon for today. But when Christ does return, he will return as a glorious king to judge the living and the dead. But you see, between now and that day, for millennia, our God has demonstrated cosmic patience. A patience that you and I can't fathom. And he's absorbing the sin of humanity, our failure. It's all being poured on him at the cross. Jesus cries out on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about this, that in this world that is beautiful, but yet broken, full of chronic disappointments and and, and wonderful things to laugh about, but also tears and pain and sorrow, we've got to cling to something. And I would invite you this Good Friday to cling to the cross in your chaos. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's invoking Psalm 22, as was said during the call to worship this morning. If you read all of Psalm 22, you realize in the end that he is not forsaken. But in the moment, he is, because he is vindicated. But in the moment, the gravity of this moment, the gravity of this Good Friday, is that he is utterly forsaken. It's not wink, wink, everything's going to be okay. He's crying out to God that he is is forsaken. And the significance of this is that the worst thing in life is the loss of love. It destroys people. Mentally and physically, it just destroys us as humans, the loss of love or the void of love. We're crushed by it. And and the closer the relationship, the closer the, the intensity of that love and the loss of it, the greater it is when we lose love to death or the death of relationship. If one of you comes up to me after the service and you say, Paul, I'm I'm done with you. I don't want to see you anymore. You know, that would make me sad. But I'm going to move on with my life. But if Susan comes up to me after the service and says, Paul, I'm done with you. I'm not going to see you anymore. I'll be destroyed. You won't see me here next Sunday if that happens. Because the closer, the more intimate, the more... So when he's crying, my God, my God. This is covenant language. God has said from the entire Old Testament, I will be your God. You will be my people. This is, a deep, this is a deep guttural cry, as what is happening with Jesus is there is a radical, cosmic, divine dislocation from eternal love that he has enjoyed throughout all of eternity. He's experiencing our judgment to take away our judgment. He's being forsaken so you can be forgiven. And this is what he's taking on. See, this is why our Christian faith is so beautiful in that we know that we are not to work our way up to God's acceptance because the cross is a demonstration that he has worked all the way down. This passage then moves it 
Moses from the cross after the death of Christ, after he cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which I may just say for 30 seconds here for the benefit of those of you considering Christian faith this morning. Jesus crying, my God, my God, is a good reason to believe that the Bible is a reliable historical document and not a legend. Because if you're trying to start a religious movement, you don't put your front runner, who's claiming to be God, on a cross, dying a shameful, disgusting death reserved only for those who've committed heinous crimes, and then have the one who is saying that he is God cry out and say, my God, my God, why am I being forsaken? That's not how you start a movement. That's not how you write a legend. That's how you record history. And so this passage takes us to the first person after Christ's death on this cross to find salvation through the cross. The Roman centurion. The Roman centurion is presiding over Christ's death and then he finds salvation through it. He watched Jesus die. He listened to Jesus cry. And he says, surely this man must be the son of God. There is a deep saving work through the tenderness of Jesus in that covenant cries he cried out. And this is an unlikely candidate of grace. I'm going to close with this. You and I would not choose him as a candidate of grace. Because the coins in his pocket would have said Tiberius Kaiser, Phileas Thievi Augustus, which means Caesar is the divine son. So that Roman centurion was used to having a divine son, Caesar. Was used to having a lord, Caesar. You don't become a centurion unless you've done some things. That man had done some things. Done some things, lived a life, Caesar is lord, looks up at Jesus and he says, Christ is Lord. He's an unlikely candidate of grace. We're all sitting here this Good Friday because we're all unlikely candidates of grace. If you're here today, I would invite you to place your faith in Christ alone and join us as an unlikely candidate of grace that we might go into this city and give a defense for the hope that we enjoy in Christ through the indwelling power of His Spirit and through us, Christ and Him crucified, that He might draw others unlikely candidates of grace. We praise him for his goodness this Good Friday.